calm the avarice Calm the war, calm hell Come attrition Come the reek of bones Come attrition Come hell This is why Why we fight Why we lie awake And this is why This is why we fight when we die, we will die with our arms unbound. And this is why, this is why we fight. Come hell, come hell. Bright of quiet. Bright of all unquiet things Bright of quiet, bright of hell Come the archers Come the infantry Come the archers of hell This is why why we fight, why we lie awake And this is why, this is why we fight And when we die, we will die With our arms unbound And this is why, this is why we fight Come here This is why, why we fight, why we lie awake. And this is why, this is why we fight. And when we die, we will die with our arms unbound. And this is why, this is why we fight. Come to me, come to me now Lay your arms around me And this is why, this is why we fight Come hell, come hell Paul Gerber covering the Decemberists. This is why we fight. And this is Labor Lines on KRFP, Moscow, Idaho, 90.3 on the FM dial, krfp.org. I'm John Andercheck. I'd like to thank Mark and Jill Lawrence for supporting this show, Labor Lines, under KRFP's 
Adopt a DJ program. If you would like to do that for any of our great programming on this great station or become a member of this great station, please go to KRFP. Coming up in this show, which I'm recording on June 6th, D-Day, saying that in honor of my father who served in World War II, landed in Normandy in July, spent 11 months fighting the Nazis over there. Coming up on this show, I'm recording on the 6th to play on the 22nd. I'm trying to get ahead of the curve. I expect to be working 7, 12-hour days for a few weeks at Longview Fiber during their shutdown. And when I'm doing that, it's work, eat, sleep, a shower and laundry thrown in there, and that's about it. So, hope to keep the program going by getting ahead of the curve here. Coming up on this show will be an incredible interview with some incredible people, Dom DeFurier and Stephanie Basile with the Communication Workers of America News Guild. They're, they're going to talk about the organizing effort at the Dallas Morning News right there in Texas. They'll take up, excuse me, that will take up a good chunk of the show for tonight. If you're listening to it on the 22nd or whenever it airs, and in between will be some music. If you'd like to get hold of me, you can do that at laborlinejohn at yahoo.com. Also, the show, you can catch the standalone interviews and the entire show on a podcast, Labor Lines and Anchor FM, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Google, Spotify, and others. So you might check that out. That would be great. It would mean a lot to me, I'm telling you. Oh, 
Heard the sound of the thunder that roared out a warning I heard the roar of a wave that could drown the whole world I heard one hundred drummers whose hands were blazing I heard ten thousand whispering and nobody listening I heard one person starve, I heard many people laughing I heard the song of a poet who died in the gutter I heard the sounds of a clown who cried in the alley And it's a hard, and it's a hard, and it's a hard, and it's a hard, and it's a hard Rains are gonna fall And who did he meet, my blue-eyed son? Who did you meet, my darling young one? I met a young child beside a dead pony. I met a white man who walked a black dog. I met a young woman whose body was burning. I met a young girl, she gave me.
The knockoffs covering the covering the pretenders. My city was gone. Those some people call that Ohio. Before that, the band covering Springsteen, Atlantic City, Springsteen, the river. And uh, what did we start this out with? Dylan and a hard rain is going to fall. So KRFP, Moscow, Idaho, coming up is that interview with Stephanie Basile and Dom DeFury. Thank you. This is John Andercheck again with Labor Lines. Labor Lines, the radio show on the great KRFP, Moscow, Idaho, 90.3 FM. And Labor Lines now for almost a year as a podcast where you can find it on Anchor FM and some other platforms. I'm recording this on June 6th, and I will just throw this in in honor of my father, who was a one of those early anti-fascists and fought in World War II. Today is the D-Day, June 6th. So with that, I'm recording this from home, and I have Stephanie Basile and Dom DeSerio joining me via cell phone conference call. Uh, they're both with the Communications of the Wor- Communication Workers of America, excuse me, uh, the News Guild. And with all that flubbing there, folks, I'm just going to turn the show over to you. If you want to do more of an introduction, and we'll talk about organizing uh, in the journalism field. Thank you. Hello, my name is Stephanie Basile. I am the new unit organizing coordinator for the News Guild, which, as you mentioned, is part of a larger union, Communications Workers of America, CWA, which has 700,000 workers represented across the U.S. and Canada. I live in Brooklyn, New York. Pronouns are she, her, and excited to be here. All right. Thank you, Stephanie. And and I'm Dom DeFurio. I am uh, the bargaining chair for the News Guild's Dallas News Guild um, chapter. And we uh, have been in the process of negotiating our first contract for the last six or seven months here at the paper. Um, These are the workers of the Dallas Morning News that are represented here. And uh, I'm I'm on staff at the Dallas Morning News. I'm a a business writer, um, and I'm just excited to to be here to, to share a little bit about our organizing story uh, and, and some of the wins we've been able to chart up in deeper at Texas. <laughs> well, very good, Dom and Stephanie. This is really exciting. I mean, I, will, I always say everyone needs a union card in their pocket, um, uh, but these are, are, are great uh, professions and great industries. Obviously, uh, news is an industry, and there's nothing wrong with saying that, but it, it, it's certainly critical to a democracy and to have a union in there uh, has uh, uh, can be critical as the times we get into. So go right ahead. What's going on in Dallas then, Dom? Maybe I'll just throw that out to you first, please. Sure thing. So um, the Dallas Morning News, we started, we started organizing, oh gosh, it was uh, probably in 2019. And it was a bit slow going. It was really difficult at first. Um, it was really spurred by um, just, just, constant layoffs, constant workforce reductions, um, which resulted in a lot of our newsroom doing a whole lot more work with a whole lot less resources, right? So less bodies. We have we have something like a, a third or even smaller, the, the number of photographers that we had just six or seven years ago on staff. Um, and, and this is the local newspaper for uh, one of the largest metros in the United States. Um, and, and I don't have to tell listeners 
listeners uh, of your radio show, but you know, everywhere around the country, local newspapers are folding, um, and, and you really hate to see. Uh, especially some of the big ones, the ones that have legacies like the Dallas Morning News. Uh, as an employee, you hate to see um, just the quality of the product um, kind of deteriorate and, and to feel as though um, some of that destiny, some of that future and legacy of the paper is a bit out of your control because these business decisions get made way above our heads. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the staff came together, uh, and we decided something had to be had to be done after uh, the 2019 layoffs, which took out two dozen journalists here, um, and uh, and some of those journalists. I mean, you know, getting into some of the issues that the the union kind of started off with. I mean, the severance packages were just terrible, and um, a, a lot of the stuff that we were seeing. The, the the notice that we got on layoffs was, you know, 50 in 15 minutes. You know, check your inbox and. You know, some of you will be standing and some of you will have to pack up and leave. It, it was very sort of up against a wall style um, layoffs. And it, it's just ugly. And it, and it really kind of made for a traumatic place to work. Um, another one of the reasons why we decided to start organizing in 2019 was uh, the lack of diversity that we were seeing in our own newsroom. Um, not being able to have as much say in the hiring decisions um, or, or work with management and how they are bringing on new talent, how they're retaining the talent that we had. We noticed a lot of uh, journalists of color who bring a really important perspective to the paper um, burning out and they were leaving. And not all the time uh, were they leaving for some bigger and better job or the New York Times, so to speak. Um, so, so it was, it, it was just this situation where morale was just hugely low. Um, and yet still it was, it was very difficult and we can get into this player, but it was still very difficult for us to organize in the beginning. Uh, and then the pandemic hit and I think things changed a little bit. We can kind of get into that. Excellent. Um, just a couple of points where we get, maybe or go on with you, Dom, or we get Stephanie in here, a couple of things. Uh, you know, I'll just throw in my pedestrian in, input here. Uh, I just love it how the, the boss, the company, the corporation wants you to give all kinds of notice uh, when you quit, right? Uh, but they don't They don't give, you know, like you said, just 15 minutes, you know? I mean, but they'd want to give the two weeks, the three months, whatever, you know, to be a professional, but they're walking out the door on a dime. Um, and, and then the reduction of staff, I call that part of the three pillars of uh of the corporate business plan and that's uh understaff uh underpay and overwork you know the or as in thomas franks the, the race to the bottom uh and we've seen it across across all of the country across obviously across the whole world uh with globalization um uh, but uh, very interesting, you know, and then myself dating myself, I'll just throw this one more thing in. And we mentioned this earlier that I grew up in Chicago is uh, back in the day on 66 in the 60s. Uh, there were two major daily newspapers, the Tribune and uh, the Daily News and the Sun-Times. And we had I mean, and they had multiple editions throughout the day. Um, and it certainly shows how times have changed. Uh, but obviously the need for. Uh, uh, good journalism, journalism, excuse me, never has. So if you want to keep going on that, or Stephanie, do you want to come in? Yeah, I'll just, I'll just add some context, too, which is I, I come from an organizing background. I, I don't come from a journalism background. I started working here at the New Guild in 2017, and, you know, when you, when you organize 
kind of like low wage high turnover workers. Um, it's not right the way they're being treated, but we're almost used to it, unfortunately. It was kind of interesting for me to start organizing journalists because I honestly had no idea how bad the working conditions were. And, you know, you've got people like, you know, Dom said that you're getting laid off with no notice, that you can't live on the pay. Um, and so I think what we're kind of seeing, like, in the overarching scheme of things the past 15 years or so is, as of 2008, really, wages have been stagnant. Um, I mean, just the idea that people go years and years without even getting a raise. The only way to get a raise is to get an offer elsewhere. So declining conditions in the workplace, and then coupled with, in 2017, the beginning of an era of political attacks on journalists, I think those two things, like the internal, external pressure, created a perfect storm that led to organizing. And so we've seen um, a huge uptick in journalists organizing all over the country. We've had almost workers organized just since 2018 in the past three years. And not just journalists, but anybody working in media, you know, anybody working in nonprofits. These people are being treated right, and they're finding their voice by coming together and engaging collectively with their coworkers. Yeah, uh, I'll just again, I'll just throw in for a bit here, and we'll get back to. to I want to hear your voices, but uh, I agree hundred percent. And you know, and and the thing is, when you're talking about uh, uh, Dallas or Chicago or L.A. or New York City, uh, uh, while the wages are stagnant for some professions like journalism, uh, the cost of living isn't. So you're basically getting squeezed out like a lot of workers is in uh, and, and uh, living in a rural area for decades now for most of my for all of my adult life. Uh, a lot of folks in the rural area don't get it, which is sad. Uh, they'll say, oh, they're making this, they're making that. It's like, well, you know, uh, uh, you know, we two, three generations ago. It used to be you could live in the city uh, at a at a working uh, rate of pay, but uh, we've seen that disappear. So again, the pressure of stagnant wages and the rise of cost of living, especially uh, so uh, hyperized in urban areas in the United States. And I'll just leave, go back to you folks. Whoever wants to pick that up or go wherever. Well, no, I think that's a good point because pay was was a really important reason for. Why we why we unionized as well? Something that's interesting about newsrooms, as far as labor goes, is um, you've got two two really big turning points um, for sort of culture and the financial situation in newsrooms. You've got the dot com boom, where um, newsrooms were were already sort of slow to jump on the digital media trend, um, and sort of the big guys were the ones that reaped a lot of the rewards. So I'm thinking, you know, like your New York Times or USA Today, your Wall Street journals, um, but the local papers really, and I hate to say this, this is critical, but I, I think that, you know, leadership would agree at, at a company like Delo, it, it was slow to really understand and uh, it was slow on the uptake for a lot of the new business model and revenue generation. Um, and, you know, that's, that's no fault to the workers because <laughs> journalists go out and they report the stories, they bring it back, they file, and that's their work, their work is done. Um, you get the copy desk, if you're on the copy desk, you're setting the paper, you're checking everything twice, and your work is done. And it, it's a lot of work, but your job is not necessarily to figure out why the 
business revenue model for journalism is kind of broken, right? Like that was really thrown, uh, a wrench was really thrown in that by uh, your Googles and your Facebooks and everybody who really stole the ad market away from uh, local papers. And, um, the, you know, you could, you could get into that even further. But um, the, the fact of the matter is, if you go back to 2008, we, had, we, we entered the financial recession, um, which DFW did recover quicker than most of the country on. But when you look at the news industry, there were massive layoffs across the board in 08, 09, uh, 2010. Things didn't start picking back up till 11, 12. There's some rehiring, but all in all, a newspaper um, like the Dallas News, which is today about 130 staffers, that's how many are in our unit right now. Um, you know, before those layoffs, we were we were in the 500, 600. I mean, it, it was a massive paper. I think we were 700 at our peak in the, in the early 2000s. Um, and, uh, and that's a lot of people covering a city. And I would argue that's a necessary amount of people to cover a city as large as Dallas well uh, in the way that the, the readership deserves. Um, but, you know, like I said, there's there's been some financial issues along the way. The problem is the paper has found footing. And, and companies are finding their way. They're still open. They are actually a paper like the Dallas Morning News uh, was able, our, our parent company was able to post profit several years. Um, but the, the problem is that the workers aren't seeing that. The workers aren't seeing things come back. Um, businesses got complacent and, and found that you know through tough times, their workers were willing to do more with less and sort of stick it out. And uh, as things improved, um, they didn't necessarily uh, gain or move upward with that. And like you said, I, the cost of living is going up. Everything is going up. We may be seeing a sort of a historic inflationary period uh, that we could be coming up on here. Um, I, I cover business here at the Dallas Morning News. That's sort of something that's always on my radar. And something that's always bugged me, too, is people paint Texas and Dallas as sort of this, um, this sort of haven where, you know, you know, compared to L.A., um, you know, sure, it's a little bit more affordable. But, but like you were saying, if you're somebody in, in rural America, you don't understand how, or, or it may be hard to comprehend how relative that can really feel, almost like a pot of water that's slowly boiling around you until it becomes too much. Um, and when employers aren't willing to help support their workers as that cost of living rises, um, it's going to be tough to tr- trouble. Um, and if you want to keep people in this profession who are talented, you have to continue to reward them uh, and, and bring them up with you. You know, Dom, a couple of points there, the loss of classified. I mean, you know, back in the day, again, you know, at 66 years of age, classified was it, you know, and the big ads. And my father was in graphic arts. It was the largest graphic arts house, as they used to call it back in the day in Chicago. Uh, and it would do all the artwork for the Sunday supplements uh, parade was like the banner Sunday supplement back then. Um, those days are gone. What, you know, what we, we all have to realize though is uh, yeah, I mean, I'm on my community Facebook page and I put my stuff for sale, you know, yard sales, all that. Um, you're thinking it's free, but remember uh, the product is you when it comes to the internet, uh, you know, Zuckerberg and company where they're making the money is you, not what you're selling as opposed to classifieds. You know, uh, I had a friend of mine say that, but yeah, whole different, you know, it was definitely an earthquake. So uh, I'll leave it at that. And uh, Stephanie, uh, do you want to come in on this or uh, uh, again, just keep going. Well, maybe, you know, Stephanie can kind of get us into 
Stephanie, you were you were there with us. Stephanie was our really our new skill point organizer through a lot of our campaign, um, really, really all the way through the election uh, and, and then some. And um, Stephanie worked with us. And maybe, Stephanie, you can just talk a little bit about how the pandemic kind of changed um, the organizing ecosystem. Because I don't know about you, but I remember a very stark difference in how organizing moved as far as momentum um, as soon as we were sort of on lockdown. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And to take a step back, I would also say that we very quickly have developed a robust organizing program at the New Skilled that really didn't exist five years ago. And because of just the huge volume of organizing that's happened, we really sharpened the program we have to be all about building bottom-up structures that members run in the workplace towards the goal of using their collective action to exercise power, to command respect, and to win better working conditions. And so everything we do is to that goal. So we really try to avoid saying, we're just here to win an election, right? We're just here to win certification, or even we're just here to win a contract. But everything we do when we organize with a group is about that longer-term goal of building those democratic structures. So in the case of Dallas, um, you know, like Don said earlier, I can't think like a really long time. It was very slow going. I remember looking at the numbers each week and it would go up maybe half a percentage point of support. So, you know, we do our assessments, right? We have our lists, we're tracking conversations and people got frustrated and the usual thing happens where people, you know, they say, well, hey, my coworker doesn't want to do anything, but they say they're going to vote yes. So let's just go public now. And so we had a lot of I think really hard and good conversations before we went public, we were still underground about like, what does it mean to really build power as a union? And I think because it was so hard and slow going, I feel like the Dallas group especially, I think really understood, right, we're not just here to, you don't just pull a lever and win an election and your workplace becomes good, but we're actually doing, we're building a long-term movement here. So all that being said, you know, it was interesting because I thought, maybe this organizing boom in media would slow down during the pandemic. And if anything, it sped up. Uh, we all became experts on Zoom and movie organizing there and, and really continued to it. And I remember last summer, early summer, company finds out about the campaign before we're ready, starts doing sustained union busting. I mean, now we can talk more about the specifics, right? But having uh, one-on-one meetings, large group captive audience meetings, sending out letters, sending gift packages of cookies to people, you know, the, the carrot and the stick all the way. That's true. And, yeah, and, and the group ended up having to go public early before we were at our support mark. And, you know, let Donald talk more about this. They had a really exciting launch of their campaign, involved the community, and then eventually was able to get those numbers up where we were we filed for an election. Um, but, yeah, I think it's you, John, to talk more about that. Or, John, maybe you have more questions about that. Well, no, but right now I'm going to come in. Right, we're, we're about 20 minutes into this session. It's very exciting. I'm John Andercheck. Uh, I'm recording this for Labor Lines, a show on KRFP, Moscow, Idaho, 90.3 FM. Great community-supported radio station. And now the podcast, Labor Lines. Joining me uh, this evening, June 6th, Stephanie Basile and Dom Desario, uh, you organizers with Communication Workers of America, the News Guild, talking about the efforts down in Dallas. So, uh, no, go right ahead at this point. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, to, to what Stephanie was saying, 
we we got the, I remember you know it was March 13th here in Dallas when the lockdown really became apparent everybody's stuck in their homes we got to figure out where to go next we probably go through a, about a month period where you know as journalists and already feeling understaffed, we're just completely overwhelmed by the news cycle. Um, like everybody else in America, we're trying to figure out what's going to kill us and yeah. what's not, uh, so to speak. And then, of course, you know what you need to do if you leave the house or go to a business um, once they started opening back up. But um, you have to understand that going into the pandemic – being in a newsroom like the Dallas Morning News, you love what you do, and it feels like a privilege to be there. And that, that shouldn't necessarily be the case. I mean, these are institutions that should be sticking around for the long term, and communities should be invested in keeping them going for the long term. But when you're working in these places, it really does feel sort of like um, – you know, it, you're, you're hanging by a thread and, and this could very much disappear. This um, sort of institution that holds the powerful accountable in such a large city could just disappear. And we would have TV stations and we would have other news outlets, but there's just nothing quite like the Dallas Morning News. The legacy that this paper and this institution has um, dates back. I think it's the it's the earliest business I think incorporated in the state of Texas um, back when it was, uh, I think, like the Galveston Daily News before they brought it up to Dallas. Um, and it, it even has a history of fighting the KKK back in the early 1900s. Um, so it, it's not something, you know, going into the pandemic, I think a lot of the workers just felt completely trodden down. Um, but what the union gave us, because these efforts were already underway, was a lot of hope. A lot of hope that, you know, we're in, we're in dire straits and uh, the entire world has sort of this doomy haze cast over it. A lot of our families are being impacted by this global health crisis. Um, and yet I saw my colleagues coming together and talking about ways that we can make our workplace better. And it, and it was just so hopeful um, that I think it was one of the main reasons that, that helped us get through the pandemic uh, from a mental health standpoint. Don't get me wrong. Organizing is one of the most, I'm going to say it is the most difficult thing I've probably taken on in my life um, or I guess in my career. Um, and, um, but, you know, it, it just it, it was the glue that held us together. And I also think it made our work better. Um, it, it got people closer, it formed bonds, um, and over the course of uh, that summer, the first, I guess this was, wow, this was just last summer, um, we ended up making the calls, we ended up getting in touch with colleagues, and we ended up um, rallying uh, other colleagues to really um, – rope in and and um, organize the entire 130 uh, member newsroom unit and it, it was just incredible and, and I remember you know Stephanie talks about us getting found out early there was almost a sense of relief because the campaign had been going for so long and we had been so under wraps that we were ready to be sort of public with it and we went and when we went public I mean, this this was historic. Uh, it, it was the first, um, you know, newsroom that had announced intent to unionize since 1991 in Texas. Um, and and I, I don't think I have to really look out for for listeners or for yourself, John. I mean, Texas is not a place where unions exactly thrive. Um, in fact, you know, it's really it's embedded in our public discourse, in our everyday politics, to frown upon unions, to sort of see unions as as groups of whiny workers who are asking for too much. Um, and so it was really an uphill battle to convince hearts and minds here that this was a, a structure and, and a democratic platform that could make our, our workplace better and also our communities better. But, um, you know, we did have quite a number of colleagues come around, and I think that they would agree with me that it was just such an uplifting moment, especially as we got closer to the election. Um, and I think 
correct me if I'm wrong, Stephanie, but I think it took us about, if we went public beginning of June-ish, um, and then we had our election by October 10th, so that's about, it's about four months. Yeah, it's about four months. So that four-month period was a lot of union busting. Um, and throughout that period, we are getting invited to, you know, meetings with the publisher and and our CEO, whom employees never see our CEO. Our CEO is not really present. He doesn't necessarily um, interact with the newsroom or comment on how things are going. Um, and this is, a, this is a guy who... He's a part of the family that was sort of the original family that oversaw the Dallas Morning News since since inception. Um, and so we were in a lot of meetings with him, and it it was a lot of you know the rhetoric that you would expect anywhere. Sort of this, we're a family. We don't need an outside party coming in here to mess things up. You're going to have a more rigid workplace. You're not going to like it. You won't have flexibility. Um, and then all the other little things that they tell you are going to be bad about a union. So it was really difficult um, to kind of field those things. Um, but but luckily in journalism, you work with a lot of very, very good critical thinkers. <laughs> and, and they can see their way around a whole lot of rhetoric, um, in, including that that comes from sort of the corporate uh, spokespeople type and, and your public, your CEO types and your C-suite execs. And so um, I, I, we fared pretty well. There were some curveballs that I don't think we expected, but, you know, hindsight 2020, we're now about a year away from when the union busting began. And, and we have more people engaged and on board with the union than we even did then. Uh, folks that were maybe turned off by anti-union sentiments are, are on board with us and they're fighting for a, a strong contract. So it, it was really incredible. And um, and I just remember, you know, Stephanie went through and hit, hit on a couple of the highlights of some of the union anti-union stuff. I mean, we, we had never gotten we had never gotten as many little like goodies and handouts and the company talking to us about how great we're doing thank you notes and stuff like that. Um, before we, we announced our intent to unionize and ask for voluntary recognition. Um, and so I think to everybody, it did feel a bit off. Um, and so it may not have had as much of an effect. There's also the fact that we are all dispersed and we were not in a central office um, where all this could happen. Um, so, our, so you know, all these meetings are, are being hosted via Zoom call and things like that, which may have been a little bit easier for our members as well. Um, uh, but but it was it also posed a challenge organizing, right? Like you, you can't just walk up to someone at their desk and, and ask them to go take a walk for coffee with you. So I don't, it's not like the pandemic was some you know easy mode for organizing in my my perspective. But um, it was uh, it was it was a long hard fought victory. We we did eventually win our election um, with a majority uh, support in October, and I think we got those results about second or third week of October. And just before that, you know, as I'm just reminiscing over over how historic and, and amazing it really was to be on the front lines and to be there with colleagues as we were counting cards. This was, you know, something that we did before the election to show solidarity with each other um, is we met in front of our actual news building, uh, you know, clad in masks 
It's um, 105 degrees in the, the beating hot tex- North Texas sun um, on like an August afternoon. And we, and I show up at the park and the intent is really to count the cards of the folks who intend to vote in favor of the union to show that we already have to support. Um, our CEO has been denying us voluntary recognition for months at this point. Right. Um, and so we're going about this process. And I find that one of my colleagues who, who is, is kind of like Stephanie said, you know, he, he had a lot on his plate. He didn't have a whole lot that he, time that he had to give to the union effort. But he invited out a civil rights icon from the city. Uh, it was Reverend Peter Johnson um, to come out and join us in the, in the card counting and, and to sort of sort of bless the union, it felt like. And, and that, I mean, to have that there um, just brought it to a whole nother level, um, not just for, I think, our members and for me personally, but um, in showing the company that this was serious and that, you know, this this union, sort of the, the stereotypes that exist of unions, um, we weren't going to play that game. We brought out civil rights icons who gave speeches there with us at the card counting ceremony, um, talking about how key and how critical unions were to civil rights era um and and i mean it just it's also in line with with our goals of seeing a more diverse newsroom that reflects the community it serves um as well so it, it was just so wonderful and i thought like a really powerful turning point in our um, election campaign for us and i'll, I'll just kick it to stephanie i sometimes stephanie will remember things about our, our election campaign that that may have slipped my mind at this point but uh, I think. Oh, go ahead, John. Well, uh, we're coming about up to the half hour, and uh, I'm going to take a, uh, a little break here, and then I'll let you uh, get on to uh, instead of having to cut you off short. Uh, it will give me a, a second or so to say a few things, and that way I'll have to be short. Uh, you know, Dr. King uh, was assassinated defending uh, workers, defending the rights of, of labor. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, not long after he spoke, you know, not long after he uh, stepped out of the box, if you will, uh, and moved the civil rights movement into the workers movement, if you ask me. Uh, so on that level, I'll throw that out. And, uh, Don, when you're talking about, you know, everything that uh, the bosses will say, you know, flexibility. And, you know, I was in logging, I've talked to other people that are in different fields and we have what we call a piece rate and you get paid by production and you're told that's better for you because, you know, you get paid for what you do. But that flexibility that they talk about or that production, in my opinion, the moment it quits work, it's not there because it works for the worker. It's there because it works for the bosses and it has nothing to do with the union. The minute it quits working for them, that's gone. And, and I'll just kind of end this half hour with that. I'm going to stop the file here and we'll pick up again in a moment. So hang on.